What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season two, episode 14. And of course, like I always do, I have to thank you so much for supporting last week's episode. Those of you who shared it on your social medias, listened, talked about it with your friends, whatever you did. If you supported last week's episode, I really, really do appreciate it. I just feel like my podcast gets better and better with each episode, which is the point. And I hope you guys agree. I try to, I put a lot of work into each episode to make sure that it tops the last. And I think so far I'm doing a, a great job with it. So let's get right into this episode. I got a lot of stuff I want to um, talk about. So I want to start off by congratulating Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack, aka Silk Sonic, because their debut single, Leave the Door Open, finally moved up to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. I think a lot of us saw this coming. I know I did. I felt like Leave the Door Open was not only a great single and a great start for this Silk Sonic era, but I also felt like it was a good song that had that slow build potential, kind of like how Blinding Lights was for the weekend in 2019. And then 2020 happened and it became the biggest song on the Billboard Hot 100. I felt like Leave the Door Open was one of those songs that when you first listen to it, you enjoy it. And then as time goes on, you realize just how good the song is. And a lot of people then become hip to the song and they start playing it and eventually it makes its way to number one. So I had a feeling that this was going to happen. And I also think that maybe um, the Silk Sonic camp was waiting for the song to go number one because they probably saw that it had a, a high possibility of going number one. And, you know, before they put out another single or even put out a album release date, maybe they wanted to go number one first and really let um leave the door open settle with fans because I think that a lot of artists they don't really do that anymore where they'll put out a song or a single and really let it breathe like put out a single milk it for all it's worth for like a month or two before they move on to the next single or the album you know a lot of the music industry is on go 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 mode where it's okay drop the single and then a week later give them the album release date and then give them the bus single and then put out the album so i really do like the fact that um silk sonic is taking their time um with this album especially because they are a new group like yes bruno mars is a huge star and anderson pack has his own um following but as a group you just don't know how they're going how music from them is going to be received or how it's going to perform so they really should be fleshing out leave the door open and and silk sonic before they put out an album just so that you know people can get used to this new group and this new idea if that makes sense so i do think that um anderson pack and bruno mars are going about the silk sonic group and the album the right way I can see them dropping their album either the end of April, maybe early May, before the summer release starts and all the huge stars start to release. Um, so yeah, congratulations to Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack Again, Leave the Door Open is a great song, and I think it's just a reminder of how good music can be when you really put um, genuine energy into it, if that makes sense. And I can't wait to hear how the Silk Sonic album sounds, because if Leave the Door Open is their first single i can only guess that this album is gonna be fucking incredible so i can't wait so noriega i think that's how you say his name from drink champs is teasing a possible episode with drake as a guest um i know a lot of people are 
were getting hyped about this possibility, especially after Drake kind of co-signed the idea, because you know how that goes. Usually when an artist goes on Drink Champs or even does a pull-up with Joe Budden or just does an interview and they have an album, that usually means, and they have an album in the works and that usually means that their album is around the corner. For me, I'm still really looking forward to hearing Certified Lover Boy, but Drake keeps dragging his feet, so I've gotten to a point where it's just like the album drops when it drops and it is what it is. I do think that it's um, a good sign that he is teasing a, a possible episode with something like the Drink Champs because that means that his album is in the last stages and so now he's ready to kind of start the rollout and you know interviews are included with album rollouts these days so well not these days it's always been the case and drake has been extremely quiet on the music front um since putting out the three pack so we'll see if anything really comes out of this i think i've gotten to the point with with the past year i think yeah because he's been teasing certified lover boy since 2020 um, to not have my hopes up super high when it comes to Drake. I think my, my, the last time I was really like hyped was in January when he was supposed to drop Certified Lover Boy after he announced that he was delaying it and didn't really give a new date. I kind of just, I'm not believing any rumors that I hear unless they come from Drake and his camp. So like I said, his album is going to drop when it drops and I hope it's worth the wait because I think if this album is trash, he's going to hear about it. Not only just from me, but from fans who have been waiting a long time for new music from him. Moving on from someone who's not putting out any new music into the new releases of last week, I wanted to start off by talking about Doja Cat's new single, um, it's called Kiss Me More. It's featuring SZA, and I believe it's the lead single. I think it's safe to say it's the lead single from her upcoming album, Planet Her, which she's been teasing since last year. Kiss Me More is a feel-good disco pop track. Doja seems to be at home in this genre, and as she should be because she does thrive in it. You know, it's really such a shame I don't care for Doja because she is talented and makes good music. It's just hard to root for her, and I'm pretty sure I don't have to break down why it's hard for me to root for her. I've talked about it on past episodes. SZA and Doja make great collaborators, and SZA sounds right at home on this song. I didn't know how they would sound together, but they do fit very well together. They both side on this track, and I wouldn't mind hearing more songs from them. You know, SZA is supposed to be dropping an album. I don't know if she has plans to do it this year, but I imagine that it's probably going to drop this year. And if she has another song with Doja on the album, I wouldn't be mad at that because this song, I think, is proof that they work very well together. I love SZA's verse. She just has a way with words, and that's a big reason why I love her as an artist. I think this song is another front runner for Song of the Summer, and I definitely think it'll be a grower like Leave the Door Open, but it'll eventually heat up, especially because it does sound like a summer track, so it's very smart for artists to release songs like that in April or May, because then by the time June or July hits, the song will have already grown more than it did when it was originally released in April, more people will have heard it, the weather will be nice by June or July, so I feel like the song will probably be more enjoyable at that point. It'll be more appreciated at that point. And it will it will be interesting if this song is a front runner for Song of the Summer because Say So, I think we can agree that Say So and the Savage Remix were the songs of the summer for last year. So it'll be funny um, if she has two years back to back where she has a song that is um, considered the song of the summer. Planet Her will probably center more on this disco pop and house inspired music which does pick up right where Say So left off. 
And since that seems to be the case, Planet Her should drop this summer. I think it sounds based off of how Kiss Me More sounds. If the whole album is centered kind of around the whole disco pop, you know, house inspired music, that is music like that, that is better fit for the summer because it's got high energy. It makes you want to dance and that's what the summer's for. That's what summer's all about. Hang out with your friends, dancing in the clubs, and just having a good time. And I definitely think that Planet Her will thrive better in the summer. My favorite lines on this song are, quote, All your niggas say that you lost without me. All my bitches feel like I dodged the county. Fucking with you feel like jail, nigga. I can't even exhale, nigga. And I think I really like this part in Scissors Verses because it's kind of like um, paying homage to the movie Waiting to Exhale. And um, I wasn't crazy about that film. I just, it's, I, I didn't hate the movie. It just wasn't one of my favorites. But I did kind of like the message throughout the movie. And I do hear um, a lot of singers kind of, I don't know if, it, if pay homage is the word, but kind of make mention of the movie in some of these songs when they're talking from the perspective of a lover scorned. And I, I, I love it almost every time. I fall for it almost every time. And it's no different in Scissors Verse. Miguel also released new music last Friday. He has a new EP called Art Dealer Chic 4. And to be honest, I was completely caught off guard by this. I had no idea Miguel was releasing anything. Even though I don't follow him, I would think that he's a big enough artist that um, some of the media pages that I do follow would be talking about it. But only one person that I followed even mentioned it. So either I just haven't been paying attention or he's really fallen off because I saw almost next to no one talking about this project even after its release. And that's not me throwing shade, that's just a fact. He even has three other EPs in this series that he's been dropping lately and I had no idea. I didn't listen to Miguel's last full length album. I think I listened to a handful of songs and I wasn't crazy about them. And it seems like I wasn't the only one. I know a lot of well, not a lot, but I know that there were some longtime fans of Miguel's that just felt like his last body of work was lackluster. And from the bits and pieces that I heard, and I don't even remember the name of the album, but from the bits and pieces of it that I heard, I can kind of agree. I can't really put my finger on what was missing from those songs um, or what's missing from some of these songs on this EP, but I just feel like Miguel maybe needs to maybe find his identity again like maybe he I, I kind of think the sound that Miguel was doing when he was at his peak has kind of faded out a little bit um Frank Ocean still kind of thrives in that alternative R&B type of sound and The Weeknd has moved on from more of the alternative R&B like on After Hours you still hear some of that darkness but it's more polished in a way it's more playable for mainstream listeners so I feel like maybe Miguel feels kind of lost like he feels like the music he was doing back then doesn't really have an audience now but I feel like Miguel has a decent enough following that if he was to make music that was true to himself there would be an audience for it his core fans would absolutely love it but I think that's kind of what was missing from a lot of his more recent music so I wanted to talk about the EP the first song on um, this body of work is called Funeral, and it has a bassy electro type of beat. And while Miguel sounds great vocally, the lyrics are way too vapid for me to really get into this song. Triangle Love is one of the standout tracks on this project. The production is reminiscent of the sound on his Wild Heart album. 
I like the story he's telling on this song. However, the outro on Triangle Love, which is from a movie, I think it's a Sandra Bullock movie, it takes me out of the song, I'm not gonna lie. It really wasn't needed and is too long in my opinion. When I do revisit the song, I don't even let it play towards the end because I feel like it's just unnecessary. So I Lie is my personal favorite off of this EP and the best track on it. The production sounds very tribal and that's part of the appeal of the song to me. I also like the message behind the track because it's relatable. I think we've all lied and said we were okay even though we were actually going through a hard time in life or just having a bad day. My favorite lines on this song are quote, I'm not complaining, I'm just chilling from not dealing with myself. That's the villain in my soul, plus I hate to ask for help. And that really stuck out to me because I feel like that's something that a lot of us relate to, the feeling of maybe feeling like a burden with our issues where we feel like the we're bothering the person that we're opening up to or that we're just too ashamed of what we're going through so we don't want to ask for help or maybe we're just too stubborn to ask for help. Um, and I, like I said, I feel like a lot of us relate to that in a way so I think that's kind of why that line stuck out to me in particular. My second favorite line from this track is quote, smile on my face while I'm turning blue. Nobody cares, just work harder. I do what I can to avoid the truth. And I feel like that plays into a lot of the conversation that more people are starting to have these days about feeling overworked or feeling like, you know, jobs don't really care about their employees. And, you know, anytime you kind of do complain about, oh, I feel overworked or I'm tired or whatever, they just tell you to put a smile on your face, suffer through it, and just keep on working and sweep your problems under the rug. I feel like that's something most working human beings feel and can relate to. All in all, this project wasn't awful. It was just okay. It was subpar and unmemorable to me. I won't hold it against Miguel because it is just an EP, but when he is ready to drop an album, I hope the music is a lot stronger and that he has kind of found his identity again in the music. Moving on from Miguel, Trevor Jackson released his new project, The Love Language, a few weeks ago, and I finally got around to listening to it. I know I'm late, but I was so caught up with Demi Lovato's album and Justin Bieber's EP, so I really didn't have a whole lot of time to um, listen to his project when it dropped like I wanted to, but hey, better late than never, and I figured it'd be perfect to talk about it during a, like, um, I know this kind of sounds like a shitty thing to say, but during more of a slow week for music, because then I could, I wasn't distracted by other big releases and I could finally give it my time. So this, uh, I think it's a, I don't know if it counts as an album or a debut, but, um, this body of work is filled with a bunch of songs that I felt weren't fully executed well. One of the reasons I could never get into Trevor Jackson's music was because I felt like there was never really any passion this project is called The Love Language and most, if not all, of the love songs on this album are empty and one-dimensional. I think Trevor is a decent singer, but his writing and conviction can use a lot of work. The two singles he released prior to this project were really good and had a lot of potential, but this album just falls flat. The songs that stand out to me though are Just Friends, Get To You, Better, and Love Don't Change. So I want to talk a little bit about the positives that I found while listening to this project and not dwell completely on, you know, the negatives. So I wanted to talk about the first song on the album, Love Don't Change. This song is produced by the Aristocrats and is a pretty guitar-led ballad. The song stands out to me because Trevor's vocals sound really solid against the guitar. 
It's also one of the only well-written songs on this project. If more of the songs on the love language had this passion and conviction that this song has, it would have been a much better project. My favorite lines are, quote, When times get low, when the world gets heavier, when it all turns cold, when the birds don't fly and the church don't sing, one thing it, I know is your love won't change on me. The next song on my top four, I think it was, is Better. And I can really hear Trey Songs and Chris Brown's influence on this track, specifically in Trevor's tone and his inflections around certain words when he sings. That could be why I like the song, to be honest. I also really like the beat, too. My favorite lines off of Better are, quote, You'll still be my baby, even when we get faded and you start acting crazy. I'ma love you, I'ma kiss you till it's all better. And yeah, this song is borderline vapid, especially the lyrics, but it's enjoyable enough that, you know, I can... I can get over it. I don't think every song needs to be deep or overly conscious. Some songs are just good because they're enjoyable and, and there's no real reason. They're just good songs and I just like better for that reason. It's just a good song. Moving on to Get To You. You can tell Trevor was actually singing with more believability or he's at least telling a really good story on this track. I think what stands out the most about this song is the production. I love the guitar and strings and the light percussion in the beat because it makes the beat sound live and usually that's the type of production I lean towards. My favorite lines off of this song is, quote, I've been capping in the finest places, capture a moment with some pretty faces, hope you see it and get irritated because I only do this shit to get to you. And again, I feel like we've all, well, most of us, maybe it's a generational thing because we're, we're more into social media, but I feel like we've all done this, like we've all posted a story on Snapchat or on Instagram hoping that that one person sees it and then you know once they've seen it you feel satisfied because you're only posting it to get to them you're only posting to them posting it to get a reaction out of them and once you get it you know that's that you got what you wanted and that's all that matters i even have friends that they'll post something for that one person to see and once they see it then they delete it because you know their their mission was accomplished or or whatever you want to whatever you want to call it The last song I wanted to talk about on this project is Just Friends, which is my absolute favorite track on this project. And yes, it has everything to do with the fact that he interpolates the melody in some lines from Lovers and Friends by Lil Jon, Usher, and Luda. It's hard to screw up while pulling from that song, and it could be my bias, but I don't care. It's obvious that Trevor is influenced by Usher, by Chris, and by Trey, and I think he pulls it off the best on this track. He doesn't just completely sound like watered-down versions of them, which is another, like, flaw in this album, that he's sounding too much like other people instead of sounding like himself. On this song, his run sounds smooth, and the keys and the production sound really pretty. My favorite lines are, quote, "'No telling where we'll both end up if we don't say something.'" There's no saying that we'll both find love if we don't make some. If all that it takes is for one of us to come out and say it, I'll say it. So baby, tell me again why we're not lovers and we're just friends. And again, Lovers and Friends is one of my all-time favorite songs. It's technically a Little John song. It's not really an Usher song, but I think Usher and Luda really make that song what it is. And every time I've heard the song sampled or someone's interpolated it, I always love it, so it's one of those samples that's easy to um, take advantage of in the way that when you sample it, when you use it, it's you're guaranteed that your song is going to sound really good because you're using an already great song, if that makes sense. 
Trevor has been making music for a very long time, so now that he's an adult and can make music by his own rules without pressures from a label or the pressures of being a a teen star, I was expecting a much better body of work from him because he is an adult. I think from here he needs to focus on a stronger theme, on his next album or project, write better songs, and find himself sonically instead of trying to sound like other people. Moving on from music, I read yesterday on Twitter that Lucy Liu has been cast as the villain for the upcoming Shazam sequel, and I don't know what it is about Lucy Liu, but I really, really do like her. She's the main reason I want to sit down and watch the Charlie's Angels movies, and they this these movies have been on my list for like two years now, so I really should... Um, sit down and watch them maybe this weekend because I do have kind of a a three-day weekend so maybe I'll finally sit down and watch the first movie because I've always heard good things about them and like I said I just really really like Lucy Liu I thought the original Shazam looked corny I never actually sat down and watched it just from the trailers it just looked like a dorky movie but I'm definitely gonna have to watch the sequel for my girl Lucy Liu now I don't know if now I'm going to be forced to have to watch the first one to understand what's going on in the second one. I guess I'll, I'll I'll play it by ear. I know that they're starting production on, I guess, the spinoff of Shazam, which is called Black Adam, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson will be playing the lead in that film. I don't know if that movie will look any better than Shazam looked. It may look just as corny. I think The Rock playing a superhero will probably come off really corny. Who knows? But I hope I don't have to watch the first Shazam movie to watch this one because I'm not really thrilled. Or maybe I'll watch it and be like, what the hell? Because I'm one of those people, I can't just watch a sequel without watching the first. I need to have some background and I really don't know much about Shazam. And maybe I'll watch the first one and it won't be as bad as the trailer looked. I doubt it. But I will definitely be watching it for Lucy Liu when the sequel drops. I don't rem- I don't know if it has a date yet. I just know it has a proper title. It most likely won't come out until next year when, you know, movies can actually be rolled out like proper movies and we can go to the movie theaters again. Which, that's one of the things, outside of concerts and just seeing my friends again, that's one thing I'm really looking forward to is going to the movie theater and and watching a movie. I never thought I'd say that again, but I think this quarantine has showed us that it's the little things in life that we love that we haven't really been able to do in over a year now so I can't wait for that I can't wait to sit down in a movie theater have that I don't want to say vibe because it's overused but have that vibe that sitting in a movie theater provides you and getting popcorn and snacks and, and just you know enjoying the full movie experience so I had to get into this new series that was I think written by Lena Waithe I think she's the writer or I don't think she's the director I think she's the the writer Um, It's a new show that she has on Amazon called Them, which is if you're if you thought immediately thought of Jordan Peele in his movie Us, then you're right on the money because that's exactly what you'll think of when you watch the trailer. Now, I don't have Amazon Prime. Even if I did, I wouldn't be watching this series. My main problem with Them, without even watching, just watching the trailer and and reading the reviews of people who have watched the series. And my problem with Lena Waithe in general is her focus and almost her obsession with black trauma. And for those of you who may not be familiar with black trauma, which has become a genre in Hollywood, especially recently in light of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and countless of innocent black lives lost, 
Black trauma is when screenwriters, directors, all of them focus their movies on traumatic things that happen to black people, whether it's slavery, police brutality, issues regarding race. And it seems to be excessive with certain people, especially with Lena Waithe. Almost all of her projects center around that. Ava, um, I can't pronounce her last name. I don't want to jack it up, but she is the creator of Queen Sugar. She has caught flack for a a lot of it because Queen Sugar is a heavy show. Now, while some screenwriters and directors pull it off well, some, like Lena Waithe, are excessive. I want to give a trigger warning for this next thing I'm going to bring up in regards to this situation because it's a lot. It was triggering for me to even read it, let alone watch it. And um, So apparently there's an episode in this series where a black infant baby is murdered and as he's being murdered, his mother is being sexually assaulted. And this is what my problem is and this is what I mean when I say that Lena Waithe is excessive because to tell a story about racism, to really drive your point home, you do not need excessive violence. You do not need to subject your talent to act through these roles and you shouldn't subject your audience, which is most likely going to be black people, through this. As black people, we have watched our people get senselessly murdered all of our lives. Our ancestors have watched their peers and their friends and their loved ones get killed and whipped and tortured. And now you want us to sit through this again? I couldn't even watch a recent episode of Queen Sugar that dealt with George Floyd's death because it was too much for me. Because it was all I watched last year. It was all we focused on because we were in a pandemic partly because black people, we pay attention to this stuff anyway. But when you're, in your, when you're in a pandemic and you have nothing to do but to watch TV and to watch the news, that's all you saw. And if it wasn't George Floyd, it was Breonna Taylor. If it's not Breonna Taylor, it's somebody else. So now we have to sit through this year as Hollywood tries to seem woke or tries to address these problems because they feel like they're teaching non-black people um, history that these educators couldn't be bothered to teach them. But now... I don't think that they realize the effect that it has on black people as we're watching this. And for Lena Waithe to put out a show like this that uses excessive violence to to tell white people that, hey, racism is bad and, and racism is so evil that this is what racist people are willing to do to get rid of black people. There's better ways you can tell this story and to tell it through violence that way seems lazy to me. And it's upsetting. And I know she's been called out on this before because she's responded to the backlash on past projects. And it's not even just the violence either. It's just this, you can tell when black stories are being told through a white lens. I think that's also my problem with a lot of her projects. You can tell that there are a lot of white people on these teams and on these sets and behind these cameras and behind these pens. They don't feel like authentically black stories. And a lot of these up-and-coming black screenwriting writers. I don't want to say even a lot, some, a few maybe, are trying to follow behind the Jordan Peele formula and in his way of thinking. And I think what worked with Get Out and with us is that he was able to tell a basic message about race in creative ways that didn't need to use violence, that didn't need to 
use some type of shock value to draw an, an audience in. His imagery and his um, symbolism and, and all of that were tastefully done. And they were done in ways that we've never seen them really done before. And I think that people saw the little bit of horror that was in us and in Get Out and they ran with it in the complete wrong direction. And I think that I'm happy that I see a lot more black talent, a lot more black creators, which is why I corrected myself from saying I see a lot of young black talent following in Jordan Peele's footsteps, but, you know, not executing it as well. But I see a lot of young black creators like myself, we're really talking about this, about how we've had enough of being forced to sit through black trauma over and over and over again in these movies. And that seems to be the only time we really get recognized at these award shows like the Oscars or, or even the Grammys when we're creating art based off of our trauma. That seems to be the only time we're good enough to get these um, awards. And so I'm happy to see people like Marseille Martin say, when you come into my office with an idea, as soon as you open up your mouth and it's something regarding black trauma, whether it's slavery or police brutality, we're not doing it because we've seen it. And it's hard for me to sit through a lot of these slavery movies because I feel myself getting worked up. Watching When They See Us a couple of years ago worked me up. It was hard to sit through. It was hard to finish because I was so angry because this is something that keeps happening over and over again. This is my life. This is what I live every day. This is what I see my people go through every day. And now I have to sit through it again. So I really respected the fact that Marseille Martin and so many of us are saying, you know what? We're done telling those stories. We've told them. And there's nothing wrong with telling those stories sometimes because it does educate people. But I think that we need to show audiences that it's okay okay for us to do a movie about black cowboys like they have on Netflix that's another movie on my list it's okay to tell a story about it I think that's why Issa Rae is so successful with Insecure Insecure is and I've only seen one season Insecure is about a young black awkward woman who's navigating her life and her job and, and her relationships and it's relatable because a lot of us are like that a lot of us are in our 20s and our 30s trying to navigate through life and so I feel like I want to see more black creators tell light, lighter stories, lighter stories involving black people. Why don't we make more movies about black people just falling in love? Why is it always centered on the trauma that comes with our race? And so I really do want us to get away from some of that. And if you are going to tell these stories, find a way to tell it like Jordan Peele and other creative black talent are doing it doesn't always have to be so excessive and violent to to drive the message home sometimes being subtle is the key and when I do write because and I have to get back to, to writing I have to get back to a lot of things but when I was writing scripts and I was coming up with screenplays I found myself wanting to tell stories that I felt like hadn't haven't been told and all of my ideas yeah I have some shows that Yes, I'm writing from the black perspective, so of course race is going to come up. You can find race in, in almost everything, if not everything. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think the whole basis of your career, the whole basis of your art needs to be black trauma. And so when a lot of people were calling out Lena Waithe for that episode, I agreed with a lot of people. And I think it's very telling that the actress herself, who I'm assuming plays the mother in that scene, 
that she needed to go to therapy for it. And she needed to lean on her friends and family and people she trusted while reading that script and acting it out because that's a lot. I don't think a lot of people realize that, yes, these characters are fake, but for the actors, they're very much real. They become a part of them because they are filming these projects six, seven months at a time. They probably feel themselves in each character they play. They're really immersed in whatever universe they're in. So it, it's probably traumatic for them because even though it's fake, your body feels like it's real because you are physically acting out these scenes. And so reading that, reading the actress say that, was heartbreaking and when I do get to where I want to be in life and I start my own production company and I create these shows I never want to put an actor through that I never want to put an actor through excessive trauma like that because I feel like there's a way to tell these really deep stories and stories that should be told and stories that have messages that can educate people who don't know there's a way to tell them and I guess that's the bottom line of what I'm trying to say in this whole rant is that we need to be better we need to tell these stories better and we need to diversify our stories too. I want to see more stories and movies about black people falling in love. I want to see a story about a black woman going to space. I don't know, some random shit, but it doesn't always have to be all heavy. And I hope that we really do get away from that. But I think it's a good sign that a lot of young people, including Marseille Martin, who's, I think she's 15, you know, say that she wants to tell lighter stories too. So I hope that Lena Waithe at least listens to a lot of this criticism and tries to, you know, be better and do better. Moving on from Lena Waithe, the Naya Rivera tribute at the GLAAD Awards was, I believe, last Thursday, so almost last week. And I don't know why I was expecting them to, like, perform, like, an, a song, like, perform an actual tribute. Um, so when it was as short as it was and they weren't singing, I was caught off guard. But in a way... Um, I think that that they were better off that way because you know I, I remembered how hard they said it was to to do Corey's tribute on Glee because a lot of them were still going through the grieving process much like a lot of them are going through the grieving process for Naya so I am glad they didn't subject themselves of trying to make it through a song and, and breaking down in tears I commend Amber Riley for doing it last year because she did it on the heels of Naya's passing and she didn't breakdown once performing that that tribute on Jimmy Kimmel last year but it was great to see Naya's legacy being honored at the GLAAD Awards I think that there's no better award show um to do that on and considering especially because she hosted that award show twice so it was nice to see the Glee cast come together again and it was nice hearing them um talk about how much the character of Santana Lopez meant to a lot of people and I think that I think my plan, hopefully I get my new mic by then and I, I figure out how to, to have guests on this podcast. I'm sure it's not hard. I've just never done so before, but I definitely have to hit up my girl Amna and really talk about getting that ugly episode, putting that together and honoring uh, Naya's character Santana because she's both of our favorite characters and I feel like that's a good way to um, honor her, especially on the heels of her one year anniversary of her death coming up so I definitely want to put that together and do my own little tribute but it, it was nice to see um, her being honored especially because she didn't get a whole lot of tributes after her passing. So the bold type is returning for its final season and I believe I don't know if it's a whole new season or if it's coming back for a mid like if it was on mid-season hiatus but I, I kind of think it's like season five um, and this is what I want to see before the show ends. 
Number one, I really want to see Kat truly figuring out who she is and what she wants out of life, or at least get an idea because she is still in her 20s. I want to see Sutton settling once and for all on the career she really wants. She's been doing a whole lot of back and forth on the career, on her career path throughout the series of, oh, I want to do this one thing, or actually I want to do this, no, I want to do this. So it'll be nice if um, by the series finale she kind of really figures out what her calling in life is or, or what she really wants to do and she sticks to it. I really want to see Jane succeeding in her writing career and let go of some of the burdens she has in her life and just be more easygoing because Jane is definitely really uptight. I don't think it's super important for the show to end with any of the women in relationships. They are still young. But if they do, more power to them. I think most fans want to see Kat and Adina end up back together. I think the writers kind of messed up their relationship and I feel like... I don't know, I'm not feeling them as a couple anymore. I feel like they should just move on and, and I feel like their relationship was more of a... It was for a specific time, but we're not meant to be together for like... um the long haul. That's kind of how I felt about their relationship. But if the writers decide to do fan service and put them back together, I'm not going to hate it. But I do want to see if if they do have Kat in a new relationship, I want it to be with somebody new. So I don't remember exactly when the bold type is coming back. I want to say it's May or June, but I will definitely be watching it and updating you guys about what I think about the new season. So this may come off random, to a lot of you, especially because this is an old story, but I felt like it was worth bringing up because my friend and I, we were talking about um, Sophia Bush and her departure from Chicago PD. So it pretty much started with my friend being like, oh, like I joke around and I'm like, oh, I'm the TV plug. Whenever she wants to find a show and she can't find it, she'll text me and be like, hey, do you know where I can watch XYZ? And usually I can find it. Fun fact, the trick is just to look up the show and look up um, where to watch it. It, um, I love that new feature that Google does now where you hit where to watch and it gives you all the streaming services you can find the show on. But anyway, she wanted to watch Chicago PD. And so I looked it up and I found out that you could watch it on Peacock. And I was telling her, I'm like, oh, you know, after I had watched and finished One Tree Hill in, I think it was like 2017, I had thought about starting Chicago PD because it was kind of like after One Tree Hill finished, I think a year later, she booked Chicago PD. I love Sophia Bush. I'll watch anything she's in. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to watch Chicago PD. But around the time when I think the fourth season started, it was announced that she was leaving. And so I was like, well, there's no real point in watching only four seasons of a show and then letting it go, especially if I was watching it because Sophia Bush is in the show. And then it started to come out the real reason why she left, which was, according to Sophia Bush, she had suffered abuse and unfair treatment on the set of Chicago PD. And around the time that she kind of revealed a little bit of that, because she hasn't revealed in detail exactly what happened, which I don't blame her for, that's something that's personal. Um, Around that time that she kind of did hint about what had happened and, and her reasons for leaving, One of her co-stars, his name is Jason, I don't know how to pronounce it, I don't really care. He was accused by, I think, multiple cast and crew members of sexual harassment, I think it was, and abuse. And so I thought that the timing of both of those announcements was not a coincidence. And later, she had kind of revealed more 
by saying that, you know, she was allegedly assaulted in a room full of people and nobody did anything to stand up for her or to prevent it from happening. And at that point, after years of trying to talk to someone and saying, hey, the culture on this set is very toxic and abusive, nobody was listening. That was her breaking point and she left the show. And so I had told my friend that and she had no idea. Obviously, I wasn't trying to do it to put a bad taste in her mouth about the show. Um, But of course, how can you hear something like that and not want to shy away from the show? I mean, I think for me, I was like, well, even if I had any interest in just watching the first four seasons because she was in it, I have no interest in watching the show now just knowing that this guy has been accused of harassment and not only has he been accused, but they let him back on the show. And now this is a cop show. So of course they're talking about police brutality. You're going to have a guy like this who has been accused of abuse telling these, helping you tell these stories. Like, uh, uh-uh, uh, not feeling it. But then after telling my friend about what happened to Sophia on the set of Chicago PD, we were brought back to what was happening on the set of One Tree Hill back in the day that came out in 2017 about Mark Schwann. So for those of you who don't know, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with the show One Tree Hill. Mark Schwann was the creator of One Tree Hill. So apparently he was sexually harassing a lot of the female cast and crew of that show. And in 2017, they wrote a letter. I think at the time of the original letter, about 20 women came forward about their stories against Mark Schwann And then after the story broke, it became 43 women, I believe, in total that said, I'm standing with my sisters on the One Tree Hill set. This really did happen. And that story was so wild to me, especially because that story broke, I think, shortly after I had watched One Tree Hill. And while watching One Tree Hill, because, okay, so I'm kind of all over the place, but let me start from the beginning a little bit. So that letter was written against him. And then Hillary Burton wrote her own letter with Variety. Now, when the story broke, I don't. I thought I read everything there was to know about the situation, but I sent the article to my friend, and I'm re- I'm reading it, and I'm like, I don't think I read this letter when it originally first came out, because there were things in that letter that I didn't know about, that I didn't remember reading about. So Hillary Burton, she played one of the main characters on One Tree Hill, Peyton, and. Mark Schwann had, I have to say allegedly, but he allegedly had kind of an obsession with Hillary Burton. And she says on multiple occasions, he forced himself on her, kissing her on the mouth without her consent, and then running and telling other, anybody who would listen that they hooked up or that they made out. Um, apparently he was obsessed with Daniil Ackles, who played Rachel on the show and tried to break down her hotel room to like get to her, to say goodbye to her, to beg her not to, to, to whatever and reading Hillary Burton's letter really took me back to watching One Tree Hill when Peyton left the show and realizing that the writers began to villainize the character now this isn't new even outside of like abuse and harassment well technically this is abuse it's abuse of power when these writers and these showrunners fall out with the actors and the actor leaves, they tend to take it out on the character. Even if the actor hasn't left, they take it out on the character by villainizing them, by giving them bad storylines, by making them go through brutal storylines. And Peyton, they always gave Peyton really hard storylines throughout the show. But after her departure, it seemed like 
they were going out of their way to really put a bad taste in viewers' mouths when it came to Peyton. You know, Peyton and Brooke, Sophia Bush's character, they were best friends. They had like a, an on and off, frenemy type of relationship. But towards the latter part of the show, they really got their shit together and they became better friends. Peyton eventually leaves the show. She has a baby. She's married. She eventually decides she no longer wants to remain in, in Tree Hill and leaves. And she doesn't come back for the finale. She didn't come back for Brooke's wedding. And it's kind of like implied, or not really implied, it's really said so by the characters themselves, that they felt abandoned by Peyton, that she got her happy ending and decided that she was going to go off and live happily ever after and not pay them or anybody in Shui Hill a second thought. Like, they really villainized her character. And as I'm watching the show, this is before that story broke about Mark Schwann, but I picked up on the fact that the writers were going out of their way to really trash the character. And so I began to look up online, like, why did Hillary Burton and Chad Michael Murray really leave? And I really couldn't find much. I found some hearsay of, oh, it was a contract issue. Oh, Hillary left to um, stand with Chad because he was going through issues or whatever it was, but nothing was ever confirmed. And then once this, these stories broke in 2017 of Mark Schwann and his sexual harassment and, and his abuse of power, I was like, that makes sense. Especially when Hillary Burton talked about what she went through on the set of One Tree Hill. And it angers me that, one, showrunners and these writers abuse their power in that way by taking it out on, on the characters. Because as fans, it's not fair to fans either. Um, when you do the when you do this to a character, especially if it's a fan favorite character, because then what we like you're ruining what we liked about the character by making it into something different based off of your personal feelings with the actor. And we've seen this time and time again. They just recently did it on Grey's Anatomy with Justin Chambers' character Alex. The nature in which he leaves is very out of character, and it puts a bad taste in my mouth. I I, I no longer like the character because of how they had him leave, which is unfair to Justin Chambers in the 15 plus years of work he put into this character of them evolving this character and making him a better man only to ruin it especially because I think Justin Chambers left because he was struggling mentally so I felt like that was unfair to him and it was unfair to Hillary Burton especially because in a way even though she left by her own choice she really had no no choice but to leave because the set became so abusive she could no longer work on a show that she loved and play a character that she loved and it really what made me want to talk about this was I really started to think about not only what are the long-lasting consequences against these abusive men, but also how is it negatively affecting the careers of the women that they're doing this to? Because in that letter, Hillary Burton admitted that now going forward, she only works with showrunners that she knows and has a personal relationship with. And if you're a fan of Hillary Burton or you pay attention to her, you've noticed that after One Tree Hill, she hasn't had many roles. And the roles that she does have are roles with people she's familiar with. She did a movie, I think, on Hallmark with Daniil Ackles and Antoine Tanner, who are both on One Tree Hill. She just recently, um, I think she has a recurring role on The Walking Dead. Her husband plays Negan, one of the most popular characters on that show. On Lethal Weapon, I think she had a couple of guest role um guest episodes on that and I think it was because she knew the showrunner so it's a shame that because of the abuse that she endured on that set 
now she has to be that way about her roles because she doesn't want something like this to happen again. With Sophia Bush, she went through it on One Tree Hill and then she went through it again on Chicago PD. And now I think she's shooting a pilot for a show. I don't know if it's been greenlit or not. But again, it's a set that's run by all women, female directors, female camera operators, female writers, because she probably feels the most safe that way. And so it's important that these men are getting consequences. And it's a shame that Mark Schwann was allegedly getting away with this for almost two decades before. And it took 43 women coming forward with their own stories to get something done, to effectively push him out of Hollywood. Because I, I looked on his Wikipedia and he hasn't been active since this broke. Um, it's a shame that it took 43 women to do that. And it's a shame that even though all of them came forward and they were, it was generally met with positivity and the letter was affected, effective, but it's a shame that women were still afraid to even speak about it. Because what was supposed to happen was after Hillary Burton did her letter, other women were going to come forward and do their own personal letter as well, but their management um, allegedly warned them against doing it because it would negatively impact and affect their careers. Even in the letter that was released, there were some women who chose to remain anonymous. And that to me breaks my heart that they can't even tell their stories about this horrible thing that happened to them because it'll still affect their careers today. So it's like, Yes, Mark Schwann is no longer working in Hollywood, but he very much still has the power in that way where, oh, you you still can't talk about what happened on, on One Tree Hill because you're an actress today on the show and these showrunners are not going to work with you if you're attached to drama, if you're attached to controversy, even though what happened to you wasn't your fault. And Hillary Burton admits it herself that she feels like she wonders if she didn't get a part in a show or a movie because she's attached to this. And they don't want the, the drama and the negative publicity or the pushback from that to affect whatever they have going on for their project. And I, I, I wish that would change. I wish that survivors of abuse could come out with their stories and not have to worry about um, it affecting their careers because I think that's what stops a lot of people in Hollywood who are being abused from coming out. Because it's the fear of, you can't say anything. We feel for you, we do, but you can't say anything because you're going to affect your career, you're going to affect the project that you're on. It's just not good for business. And I really do appreciate um, Hillary Burton's balls, <laughs> um, for lack of a better word, because she really stuck her neck on the line. And she was the only one, and, and I'm not saying this to shame the others who were going to and, and, and backed out or whatever, what was supposed to happen there but it's just I appreciate I appreciate Hillary Burton's bravery because she could have chose to protect her career and not say anything which was her own prerogative I don't I wouldn't have thought any less of her but she chose to not only speak about her experiences and take her power back but she was also empowering the other women who suffered on that set alongside her and and I could go on and on about this topic if if I have triggered interest and you actually want to read up on it yourself you can look it up you'll find all of the articles right away they're really powerful pieces that were written um but it's just a shame that we can't even we won't ever and I hate reboots but it's a shame that we'll never get a reboot or a special because the show is attached to Mark Schwann he'll always get money from it and they say that that's the one 
big thing, really the only reason they haven't considered doing a reboot or a reunion or whatever, because they know he'll be attached. He'd have to give his rights up. I hope someone with a whole lot of cash buys the rights. Maybe in like 20 years when I'm on and popping and, uh, and I'm balling, I'll buy the rights of One Tree Hill and we can do a reboot or we can do it the right way. But, you know, I really commend Hillary Burton, Sophia Bush, um, Daniil Ackles, all of the women that really spoke out against Mark Schwann and also the men that protected them on that set because I think as bad as abuse is, it's just as bad when you're a bystander and you're not doing anything. So it, it's great that some of the men really did have their back. That really sounds like that set was a nightmare and I haven't re I think I've rewatched One Tree that's a lie. I have rewatched a couple of episodes from One Tree Hill since that came out. And now you kind of look at it from a new perspective. It kind of taints that show. And I think a lot of the women also remain silent over the years because they know how much that show has affected people, how much how many lives that show has, has saved a lot of the young teens that were watching the show at the time. And so when you hear things like that or even with Glee, when you hear things like Mark, what Mark Salin did, it does ruin the show in a way. It kind of taints it in a negative light. And when you watch these actors, you can't help but think about the gross things they've done and the abusive things they've done behind the scenes. And so now you, it's kind of like you feel guilt for enjoying the show or, or just even, I don't know, but I know a lot of people agree because when that story broke, one of my friends who loved One Tree Hill said watching the show won't be the same because even though that show was changing a lot of people's lives and a lot of people loved that show, these actors were suffering behind the scenes. And so it's like, okay, we're enjoying the show, but it was hell for them. It's kind of like a weird guilt thing. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks so. I've seen a lot of people say that about various other shows. I'm pretty sure a lot of people feel that way about the Cosby show where watching it now is not the same because now all these things have come out about Bill Cosby and so it kind of you can't enjoy the show the same like you can enjoy it but that's always going to be in the back of your mind especially when it's a wholesome show like the Cosby show was um so I, I just I wanted to revisit that story because I felt like Hillary Burton's and the um, cast and crew of One Tree Hill their stories or their letter to Variety was really really powerful and it triggered just a lot of thoughts for me just really thinking deeper than, oh man, we're canceling this abusive person, but really think about, okay, once we do that, how is that impacting the survivors of this abuse? So I wanted to get behind my platform and talk about it because obviously I didn't have a podcast when the story broke in 2017 because I definitely would have been talking about it. Um, but I was like, you know what? Shout out to my friend because I have to hit her up after this. I'm like, you inspired a, a great segment on this podcast. Um, and I just wanted to kind of get my thoughts off and, and really question what the real consequences are for these abusive human beings when some of them do get let back onto their projects that they were suspended from or, you know, even outside of abuse. Um, Morgan Wallen, I know I've, I've talked about him in the past. I'm sure you remember. He's already back on radio, I heard. So it's like how long-term are these consequences going to be for these abusive, ignorant people? You know, I, I really do wonder. Moving on to lighter topics, it was announced that 
Starting in 2022, Tom Holland's Spider-Man movies will be exclusively on Netflix after they leave the movie theaters. This is also an overall deal that Sony has with Netflix, so any Sony movie will end up on Netflix after their theatrical runs as well. And I think a lot of this has to do with the quarantine impact, let's call it, where, you know, a lot of movie theaters are not functional, so they had to come up with something new so that these movies that they've been sitting on for a couple of years can generate money and that plan was to have them stream on streaming services for like a month before pulling them which i thought was a great idea i i'm sad that warner brothers won't keep this plan even outside of the pandemic i think next year they're not doing that anymore but now that's translated into okay we're not gonna put it on streaming services at the same time as it being in the theaters, but what if we put the movie exclusively on this streaming service? What if these movie companies start, you know, making these exclusive deals with HBO Max, with Netflix to host their content after um, the movies ends because that'll boost um, subscribers for them. And so that seems to be the thing now where, okay, after this movie is done in the theaters, in a month or two, let's put it on Disney Plus exclusively. Because if people didn't get to see the movie in the movie theaters, they'll go running to Disney Plus or HBO Max to watch it. And I think that's smart because there are a lot of movies that I wanted to see that I just didn't have time to go to a movie theater for. So now you give me the incentive of, oh, just wait a month or two. It'll be on, on Netflix. I'm going to be like, hell yeah, I'm going to get Netflix. Especially when you have these big movie companies like Sony, like Warner Brothers, that are making these big exclusive deals where every single movie that they're attached to is going on these streaming services. These are big movie companies. Their companies cover a lot of movies. So it's worth getting Netflix. It's worth getting HBO Max and Disney Plus because you know that, okay, I won't see it in theaters, but I have access to it at home and it's worth the money and that's what they're banking on. So I'm not mad at it at all especially because it seems like so far all of these deals are with streaming services that I have. I do think, and I've mentioned this before, that the streaming um, business has gotten out of control with there being thousands and thousands of streaming services and it's hard to keep up with them all because I'm not buying a streaming service for one little thing, for one little show, one little movie that I'm just going to watch and then get rid of the streaming service afterward, which is why I think... HBO Max, Disney Plus, Netflix, Hulu are the big streaming giants because these companies are going to look at them first. They're not going to put their stuff on Paramount Plus. They're not going to put it on Peacock. They're going to put it on a streaming service that has a lot of subscribers. And HBO Max and Netflix, they're some of the biggest streaming giants. So they know they're going to strike gold over there because they have a lot of subscribers. So I'm down with this idea. I do plan on watching the Spider-Man movie in theaters when it drops, but I definitely will be watching it when it hits the streaming services as well. And I think also it makes it easier for me to not have to buy as many DVDs. I like have a whole library of different shows and movies. Like my friend was making fun of me. She's like, what show don't you have on DVD? I literally have them all. I have Degrassi, Friends, One Tree Hill, um, Glee. I like, I have like a whole series worth of DVDs. And so it's gotten to a point where literally I'm looking at it now. My DVD um, cabinet is full. I, I, I cannot fit any more DVDs in there. It's hit its limit. And it got t- it's getting tiring to keep having to buy these DVDs. So I am glad that um, the companies are making this 
these deals with the streaming services because now I don't have to go out and buy a DVD of a movie I've never seen, hate the movie, and then wait, I have, I've wasted my money and I'm never going to watch it again. It allows me to have more space because I was buying the Friends DVD, well, not buying, I was getting gifted the Friends DVDs because I didn't have HBO Max at the time and it was a show that I really, really love. And I was like, well, if I don't have access to it on Netflix, I want to be able to access it whenever I want. But now I have HBO Max. So now I have like, I think I have the first five seasons on DVD. I'm not going to get the rest of the seasons if I have HBO Max. It's it's not going anywhere from HBO Max. I think now we're in a space with streaming services where um, these deals are concrete in the sense that they won't be on H, you know, Friends is not leaving HBO Max. I think that's a deal that they struck with the creators and the network that were HBO Max is now the official home for Friends. From for Friends, it's not going to ever be on Netflix again. You won't find it on Hulu. I think that's the case with The Office too. Its official home is on Peacock. It's not going anywhere from Peacock. You'll never see it on Netflix again. Um, and I think that's kind of where Netflix is kind of losing. A little bit, so I think this is a big win for them to get a a, comp- a movie company like Sony to make a deal like that with them. So I can't wait for more of these deals to start being in effect. But I'm not like an official promoter for HBO Max. I'm not getting paid for this, but I do think if you love movies like I do and you like to keep up with the latest movies, you're a podcast host yourself. Um, getting certain streaming services like HBO Max, like Netflix, they're important because you'll kind of always kind of be on top of what's going on in the movie world or even the TV show world, and you'll and you'll have access to a whole bunch of movies. I don't regret getting HBO Max at all. I think it's a smart streaming service to have. Moving on from that, a Medea prequel series is in the works at Showtime, and I think it's funny to me because Tyler Perry did this whole, you know exit roll um not exit roll up but this whole final hurrah for Medea and and doing this whole rollout this is the last Medea movie only for him to um create a prequel series for Showtime I loved Medea as a kid I still love the movies now not so much the later ones I think Tyler Perry lost his edge with those movies which is why when he announced that you know he was no longer making them it made sense I feel like he ran out of steam for them um, I was a little surprised to see that he struck a deal with Showtime to do this series because I, I really did believe he was done with the character. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be watching because I love Medea and I, it'll be interesting to see like um, a Medea from the beginning because you hear a lot of her crazy stories about her younger days throughout the movies. So it'll be interesting to actually see it. I don't know if Tyler Perry is going to play Medea in this because it is a younger Medea or if he's actually going to get like an actual black woman to play the character. I, I guess we'll see how it looks. Um, I'm saying I'm going to watch it, but if the trailer's not hidden, I may not. We'll see. But I'm definitely going to attempt to watch it and see if it's any good. So I wanted to talk about Godzilla vs. Kong because I watched it last weekend with my dad. So I'm going to start off by saying this. If you went into this movie expecting cinematic gold, I'm side-eyeing you. Um, because I don't know what deep content you were expecting from fictional monsters fighting each other. Uh, but I did see some hot takes or really cold takes on Twitter about um, what they were expecting from Kong versus Godzilla. But I thought it, that was ridiculous. This movie gave me pretty much what I was expecting for the most part. A bunch of CGI and two made-up monsters fighting with each other. 
the biggest flaw with this movie was that the story was all over the place. It was just very messy. And even though I wasn't expecting like a cinematic masterpiece from this movie, I think any movie should have a um, solid story and it should be told in a way that makes sense. No matter what the film is in this movie did not do that well at all. I feel like the writers and the director were trying to cram too much into one movie. It's like they couldn't figure out if it was a Kong movie or a Godzilla movie. I think um, a lot of things could have been cut. I also think they could have went with a better or more interesting storyline because the villains and the motives weren't interesting for me. It, it, you know, I think when you're involving a villain or a like bad character that has these really evil motives, they have to be really strong to draw an audience in. I think I said this about um, the Justice League movie too, where um, the villain has to be really strong and they have to be, their motives have to be, their motives have to be enough to justify why they're the villain, if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Like with Thanos, he was one of the best villains in a superhero movie because even though you hated him, well, most people hated him, he had strong beliefs and he had a strong reason for why he wanted to snap half of the world. And even though you didn't agree with him, the story was so interesting, it drew you in and it made you want to root for the heroes to beat him. The story has to be strong, the villain's motives have to be strong, and I felt like there was none of that in this movie. There were storylines, like this, mostly the scenes with Millie Bobby Brown, that just didn't fit the movie at all and weren't needed. It, I, I feel like they were trying to make that the, the comedic relief part of the movie but it honestly could have been cut and you wouldn't cutting those scenes out of the movie wouldn't have mattered because they weren't essential they didn't help tell the story at all didn't progress the plot line whatsoever you could cut them and I could rewatch the movie without those scenes and not even miss them or notice that they were gone I think based off of how the movie ended the next Godzilla and Kong standalone movies could be more interesting than this one honestly I'd be down to watch um another Kong movie based on how this movie ended. All in all, I think the best parts of this movie were um, Kong and Godzilla fighting, which, you know, the title is Godzilla versus Kong, so if anything else, their fight scenes should have been good and they were enjoyable to watch. And I definitely, even though I wasn't crazy about this movie one way or the other, I definitely do think that watching Godzilla and even the Kong movie are worth it for me because I was interested enough to go back and, and learn their origin story. So I'm definitely going to get around to that. Probably won't be for a while though because I have a lot of other things I really need to be watching. It was announced, I think, yesterday or a couple of days ago that Bridgerton has been renewed for seasons three and four, which is not a shock. The first season was a smash hit. You have Shonda Rhimes behind the whole thing. Of course, it was going to be successful, so... I'm still on the fence. I know I said last week, I think it was, that I wasn't interested in watching Bridgerton um, because Regé Jean Paul, I think that's how you say his name, is leaving and the season won't be focused on him or his character's love interest, Daphne, anymore. But I may give it a shot because um, the way the season one ended was interesting enough. It was a cliffhanger. So I kind of see where, I want to see where that leads. So I may watch it. I know my friend said she's not trying to watch it, but I'll convince her. We, we may try to give season two a, a shot. Yesterday, I watched the episode three, I believe, of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I know I haven't talked much about the show in a while. It's just because their episodes have been kind... It's, it's a it's a slow buildup. It's a slow burn. The show isn't as um 
quick to action as um WandaVision was. So there wasn't a whole lot to recap in the second or third episodes. Now that I think about it, I think it's episode four, not three. So there wasn't a whole lot going on for a little bit, but I believe now we're kind of slowly getting somewhere. So first off, I have no sympathy for Carly at all. She is the villain of the show. She's pretty much trying to keep the non-superheroes and also the people who remained after Thanos snap. She's trying to maintain power for them. And by doing this, she's using the super soldier serum and giving it to her, um, I guess she's giving it to her people. But like I said, I don't really feel any sympathy for Carly. I know they were trying to, I don't know if they were trying to get us to have any sympathy for her in this latest episode. It wasn't working for me. I don't know if she's a super strong villain or not. Time will tell. I do think the power broker is the real powerful villain in the story. We only know a little bit about him. And I don't even want to say we know a little bit. We've only seen and heard a little bit about um, the power broker. So I think that by the end of this season, we'll probably get to know him a little bit more. I wouldn't be surprised if Carly ends up being killed by the power broker because I know that he wasn't happy with her in this latest episode. Um, so I do think that she's just the beginning of all of this. I think she's just the the face of the Flag Smashers, but the power broker is the real villain. I think the new Captain America is a smug jackass who very obviously feels inferior to those with powers because he has none. He did take the super soldier serum which I didn't see coming until he got his ass kicked by the Wakandian soldiers. And you can tell in that scene that he felt embarrassed and weak, especially because he says himself, you know, they weren't even super soldiers and yet they got the better of him because they're just very highly skilled fighters. And I think he knows deep down that he wasn't the best choice for the Captain America role. He feels very um, inferior. And so even though I didn't see him taking the soldier serum coming before, after he got his ass kicked, I'm like, I can see them trying to go there. He's going to try to find some way to be more compatible against the villains and, and, and supers that he's fighting. Because really, Falcon, he's not even a super really. He just has the technology. He could kick his ass any day. So I think that I saw him taking, I saw it coming at that point because I'm like, well, he knows that based off of his brute strength, and the skills that he had obtained from being in the army are not going to cut it when it when it comes to these super soldiers and these, you know, supers, I guess you could call him call them, that he's fighting. I love the way that the episode ended with the new guy, the new Captain America, losing his shit and killing one of the super soldiers in rage for killing his friend, only to find out he was being filmed. I think this definitely taints his image, and it may force him out of the position... And with the new mid-series trailer, it's clear he's not giving up the title without a fight. But I do think, or it's my hope, that Sam does pick up the Captain America mantle from him. Because I think this is where this is going. Obviously, people are going to see that video. They're going to say, hey, this is not what Captain America stands for. He's not evil like this. He doesn't kill people um, seemingly for no reason, even though he did have a reason. And we don't want him to be Captain America anymore. It may he may be pushed to resign from the role, and if nobody else is taking the role, it should be Sam because I think that's the way Steve wanted it. I think it's the way that um, 
Bucky wants it even if he, even though he won't really say it. And it makes the most sense for Sam to take on the Captain America mantle. And hopefully that's how the season ends. I think that's how it'll end. Or maybe that's how the series will end. I, I think that they have more um, potential to have more than one season. Unlike WandaVision, obviously that was promoted as a limited series. That's a show that really couldn't have been more than one season. But The Falcon and the Winter Soldier is a show that can be more than one season. And I think that if anything else, by the end of this series, Sam Wilson should definitely be the next Captain America. And I think the audience will accept that as well. I did, before the episode ends, I did want to talk about the Shameless series finale. There's, and I say talk, but there's not really a whole bunch to really say because this series finale was extremely lacking. It was underwhelming to me. And I'm not surprised by that because the last few seasons of Shameless just have been garbage. I think the characters have regressed instead of evolving. I think the writers got bored and were just making storylines out of thin air that made no sense. So when they had announced that the show would be ending with the 11th season, I said, thank God, because I don't think I could sit through another season of Shameless. It just had gotten so bad. So I'm not surprised that the series finale was lacking, just because it, it's very apparent that the writers ran out of steam. I did hope that after 10 years in having such a cult following that they would find it within themselves to come up with something decent. I think that the one... The one positive out of the finale was that it wasn't unrealistic where it's everybody has a happy ending and we have all the answers and everything works out in the end because part of Shameless's appeal is that it tells the harsh realities of people living in poverty. And so they have been broke and living in poverty their whole lives. All of a sudden, towards the end of the series, it's not just going to become magical for them. But there were tiny little happy moments I really think that out of all of the characters that Kevin and Veronica had the most satisfying ending, um, I think it completely made sense for them to move out of Chicago because I feel like particularly in the last few seasons of the show, Veronica has started to outgrow Chicago. I think that's why she was fighting her mother so hard when her mother was moving. And so I think part of her deep down knew that what she desired and what she wanted out of life just couldn't be found in Chicago anymore and she needed to move on. I think Kevin would have been content either way. He's going to go wherever she goes. But I really do like, I did really like their ending with, you know, Veronica now wanting, getting a job in Congress and um, Kevin getting a job at a better paying bar. I do think that Carl becoming a cop in the show was just so out of character for him. Even when he did eventually became, become a cop, he was fighting against a lot of their their rules and their moral codes. I think that was one of those storylines that the writers just got bored and said, hey, we don't know what to do with Carl, let's make him a cop. I do like the fact that the show ended in the same way that it started with um, Frank, their father's monologue, being a lot of the same. I think another thing they got right with the series finale was killing Frank off because I don't think someone who was as much of a raging alcoholic and addict as Frank, he had nine lives, but they don't live forever. And I think that realistically it made sense for them to kill him off in the way they did. I also think that each of their, the characters' reactions to his death was understandable. Liam was the most affected because towards the latter seasons, Frank and Liam had a better relationship. They seemed close. It seemed like Frank was trying to at least try to be 
as decent of a father as as Frank can be. Um, so really, Liam was the only one that was, I guess, m- grieving his death and, and really affected and felt sad. The other kids were just like, well, he was a lost cause. He was never a great father. Anyway, I think um, Lip this season especially was so unlikable. I do think that he kind of got what he deserved because it, it was his idea to sell their family home so that they could make money and each decide to use that money to find another place to live. He was kind of uprooting his own family out of the home, out of their family home for his own personal gain. So when it didn't work out the way he wanted it to, I kind of felt like he deserved that in a way. I don't think that him and Tammy have chemistry. I don't think they're a good couple at all. I couldn't stand them together. They didn't make sense. Their characters barely got along. But it's what they chose for him. I am glad that at least he's acting more like an adult and he's more settled and less rowdy and he's sober for the most part. That was good to see, but them pairing Lip and Tammy together was... They could have went with something. Uh, they could have went with a better choice. I don't like the fact that Fiona was barely included in the finale. I understand the actress, Emmy, left. Um, but I felt like Frank not including her in that in his final letter to his kids didn't make sense, especially because they made mention of Fiona earlier in the episode with him kind of, you know, flashing back to various periods of his life. They show like a montage of Fiona. And so it just didn't make sense for Frank to not include her in the letter. I know I read something on Twitter that said that they were trying to get Emmy to come back for the series finale, but COVID ruined it. I felt like that was just an excuse. They could have at least had her do a video chat and and include her in some kind of way. Um, I don't know if her exit from the series was like dramatic, if, if there was some drama um, surrounding her exit from the show, but I, I really feel like Fiona should have been included in the final episode. They, they could have tried harder. They could have found ways to include her other than doing like a little montage or whatever you want to call it. I do think that Debbie... Probably if the show had continued or if they did, God forbid, did a spinoff, Debbie would have spiraled out of control because she already kind of was heading in that direction. Um, I definitely think that she's probably going to repeat the cycle cycle that Frank created and be a horrible mother to her kid, get into the wrong types of things. I mean, Debbie's got to be one of the most unlikable characters on TV ever. And her ending was pretty much what I expected to her running off with her lover of the month who's giving her the attention that she needs and stuff like that. And even though I don't care for um, Ian and Mickey as a couple, they're just very, very toxic. At least with this last season or two, they've become more mature. They got married, of course. um, And they're acting... Well, Ian never had a problem with being an adult, but Mickey is getting there. And so I do think that there was a lot of growth in not only them as characters, but their relationship as well. Honestly, don't think they should have ended up together, but I think the the writers did a um, realistic job of showing their evolution as a married couple and kind of, I guess maybe, what's the word? We won't see these characters, characters again because it's a finale, obviously, but kind of setting the tone of this is what they're going to be like going forward. They're going to be more mature. They're going to communicate better. They're going to be this and that. So I do think that Ian and Mickey had a... They're, they probably had the second best ending in the finale as well. Even though Shameless has been downhill for a while, the show in its prime was a really, really good show. I don't think there will there's ever been a show like this one. I don't think there'll ever be a show like it again. And they had a really, really good run. 
I because the show hasn't really interested me in a while the finale wasn't as sad to me it was just kind of one of those things where yep it should have ended they've had a good run the show isn't what it was let's just end it here um I don't know if I'll ever be interested in starting the show from the beginning if I do it I'll probably stop watching after like the sixth or seventh season I don't know but Shameless had a good run, and if you haven't, I mean, if you have watched the show and you've watched the finale, let me know what you think. I wonder if you have the same thoughts about the finale as I do. So before the episode ends, I did want to talk about DMX, who passed last week. I'm not going to lie, I shed a couple of tears when I read that he passed, even though I wasn't overly shocked because things didn't look good. Mostly because I think a lot of us know... He had a hard life, and he fought against his demons for his whole life. And so the fact that someone who seemingly just wanted to be happy, that wanted to get better, the fact that he lost to those demons was really heartbreaking. Um, And of course, I returned to his song, Slippin', which last year as I was going through my own hard time, that was a song that I leaned on a lot. It was a song I felt like was speaking things that I couldn't articulate well enough and I think that's one of the great things and the things that really stuck with people when it comes to DMX was that he talked about mental health in a way that nobody had done at the time he's in he his debut album came out in the late 90s people weren't talking about mental health like that back then and I really think that he taught a generation of young black men that it was okay to be vulnerable, it was okay to have problems, it was okay to ask for help. Um, so his death is just heartbreaking for those reasons and a lot more. He's got 15 kids that I know are going through a hard time right now that are grieving. I hope that people online and people in their lives are being very, very kind to them during this hard time. One of my favorite things about DMX, especially as a teenager, was just his passion and his rage. And he was never afraid to show his emotions, no matter how ugly or unflattering they were. And he was a good rapper, too. He did all of that and was a good rapper. And as a teen, as a angry little teenager, um, I really appreciated that rage because I felt like not a lot, not a lot of rappers were able to capture rage the way that he could. I am happy that last year DMX really got to have his flowers with his versus battle, with the Rough Riders documentary, with his interview with On Drink Champs. You know, a lot of people are showing a lot of their love and appreciation for DMX, especially with something like Versus, because it makes you return to a lot of music that you love, that you haven't listened to by these artists that you love. And, you know, that's what Versus was created for and you know I am happy that he was able to complete his album that he had been working on because he seemed to be really happy and passionate about the music he was making and even though I'm not as big of a DMX fan as my dad or as even my friend Mo is she loves him um I really did love some of his music and I am glad that I returned to songs that I loved by him last year and also just songs that I was listening to for the first time, especially after watching the Rough Riders documentary, because I only watched the documentary for DMX and Eve, you know, how much I love Eve. So I watched it primarily for them. And after that documentary, I returned to a lot of his music, which is how I got into Slippin'. And and I'm so grateful for that song. It's hard to listen to now in light of everything that happened. But 
I really do appreciate artists like DMX that give listeners something to hold on to. And he, I know he saved a lot of people's lives with his music. And the beautiful thing about music and art is that it lives on forever. And his music and his legacy is going to live on forever. So in honor of DMX, the song of the week is Slippin'. Rest in peace, DMX. I'm praying for his family and loved ones at this time who are grieving. We have come towards the end of the episode. Thank you for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour. And it looks like 26 minutes, almost 27. I hope when I listen back to this episode and as I edit, it doesn't sound like one big jumbled mess. I know sometimes as I'm recording, it, it feels that way. But when I actually listen back to it, I'm like, okay, this this somewhat makes sense to me. Maybe it'll make sense to my audience as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can rate podcasts on. And if you want to support me further, then please head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com or my anchor page and donate to my listeners' donation. I would really appreciate it. You can also keep up with me on social media on my website. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm on everything, even YouTube. Again, my website is www.listentomespeak.com. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.